You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities, and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 137, The Soviet Union, part 7, Further Five-Year Plans. This week, a big thank you goes out to Stian, Jacob, Ryan, Eric, David, Hovey, and Ian for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. The last three episodes have focused on the impact of the five-year plans on Soviet agriculture and the major changes that were made within Soviet agriculture to support the industrial goals of the first and second five-year plans. This episode will carry the story forward from the first five-year plan to the second five-year plan, which would run from 1932 to 1937, and then we will touch briefly on the third five-year plan that would begin in 1938. The general goal of both of these plans was to simply continue the actions of earlier years, only bigger, better, faster, stronger. Each of the steps, each of the five-year plans, enabled the next step as well, with the Soviet tank industry being a great example of this. In the late 1920s, the number of tanks that Soviet industry could produce was very small, and they were lacking the entire supply chain of manufacturers to go from raw steel to a finished tank. This would completely change over the following decade. By 1941, they were able to produce 12,000 tanks per year, which was a phenomenal sum. And at the start of the war in 1939, the Soviet Union was able to produce more tanks, planes, and many other types of weapons than all of the other nations involved with the war combined. 
It is hard to overstate how massive the Soviet industrial base was just 13 years after the start of the first five-year plan, but this came with a cost. With so much of the focus being on heavy industry, and particularly those industries that were focused on the military, the production of consumer goods fell off a cliff. With so much of the focus on industry and, and everything around it, consumer goods were relegated to a lower priority for resources and for workers, both of which were, were very finite resources when compared with the goals of the five-year plans. The theory was that this would be a temporary sacrifice, and after several years of these sacrifices, the Soviet Union would be such an economic powerhouse that the production of consumer goods could be brought back up and would probably exceed their former highs. But in the meantime, by some estimates, the production of consumer goods during the 1930s dipped below the level seen in 1913, back in the time of the Tsars. This was maintainable because of the amount of central control within the overall Soviet economy. In cases where there was not enough of a specific consumer good to satiate demand, the price could remain the same while supply was constricted. The ability for central price control prevented any kind of inflationary problems because they could also control the supply. Along with the major advances that were made in the realm of economics, the second half of this episode will focus on another aspect of Soviet life during the interwar period, the Gulag. The Gulags would begin as labor camps primarily for political prisoners, but they would greatly expand during the 1930s in conjunction with the attempts to reorganize Soviet society into a better socialist structure. But first, we, we gotta do these economic discussions. As drafting began on what would become the second five-year plan, one of the biggest challenges is that the planning was designed to build upon the efforts made during the first five-year plan, but those efforts were not complete, and therefore assumptions had to be made about any number of important factors. This could be as simple as how much coal was being produced every year, and it could be as complicated as how many factories of particular types would be available to begin work in 1932. This set the second five-year plan off on unsteady footing because there were many goals from the first five-year plan that would not be met by the time that the second five-year plan started. The major focus of this second five-year plan revolved around continuing to expand Soviet heavy industry, especially in the production of steel and coal. But there were also goals around the improvements of railroads, um, general economic expansion, and the reduction in the influence of the church within Soviet society. There would also be some easing of the reductions made to consumer goods with the goal of allowing the standard of living to rise, almost in recognition that the, second, that the situation under the first five-year plan was not sustainable. The Soviet military would continue to advocate for focus to be placed on military needs during the second five-year plan, and each year military plans would be written based on the increase in productive capacity. The goal was still to continue to increase the number of modern weapons that the Soviet Union was capable of producing, particularly aircraft, tanks, artillery, and ammunition. For these items, the goal was to try and double production by 1933, and then double it again by the end of the second five-year plan. One of the major challenges with this plan, and it's a pretty good example of how challenging it can be to make these kinds of huge economic plans, was around production capacity versus actual purchasing plans. The military committees were always pushing for greater and greater maximum production capacity, with the goal of always being able to produce more and better equipment. However, given the current risk assessments from the military planning committees, there was not a lot of urgency around expanding the military forces in the immediate future. 
Also, the more resources that were spent on current military equipment, the fewer resources were available for other production. This created the situation where total military production capacity within the Soviet Union would balloon during the middle years of the 1930s as more and more factories came online, but the total orders for actual weapons from the military only barely increased during those same years. It would only be in the second half of the 1930s that total military spending for the expansion of the military would begin to greatly increase. This expansion was only possible because of the efforts made earlier in the 1930s, but for several years, those efforts largely resulted in idle capacity. With another round of economic and industrial planning came with it another round of military planning as well. During the first five-year plan, the primary context in which Soviet military planning occurred was focused on a war with Poland and Romania. The new production capacity that was built during the first five-year plan, the new goals of the second plan, and the rising threat of Japan would cause a new round of planning. In 1933, Tukhachevsky would say, quote, Japan's systematic preparations for conquering the Far East continued uninterrupted. They will become a real threat for military action in 1934, end quote. This would set the stage for much of the Soviet military planning for the rest of the 1930s, with two different threats emerging— Germany, and Japan. Given the geographic distance between these two threats, it made planning and preparations more difficult. In Europe, instead of a coalition of Poland and Romania, which had been the primary threat during the first five-year plan, the primary threat would expand to instead be focused on, a, on an alliance of Germany and Poland. This change was made in 1935, and then in 1936, a major war game with these two nations as the enemy would be conducted by the general staff. This was another scenario in which the concept of deep battle was tested, with the even larger concept of deep operations, which would attempt to push through the enemy front even further, all in one push, sort of tested. There were many challenges in making these massive operations actually work. They were just large and complicated, and depended on great communication. The good news was that the Red Army would establish its first mechanized corps in 1932 to allow for first-hand experience with large armor units. But this one unit did not suddenly solve all the problems faced by the Red Army, and there would be an increased emphasis on motorizing infantry and artillery units in the years that followed, along with the creation of more and more armored units during the mid-1930s. Even though expansion was happening, even though the Soviet Red Army was getting new equipment and was attempting to use them in new and innovative ways, like in deep operations, there were still some challenges. Resources for rearmament during the mid-1930s were scarce, and only got scarcer as goals expanded. And this would cause the entire rearmament process to slow for the Red Army, because they didn't want to spend as much money as would be required to, to import, in many cases, the resources that were needed. Some of this was also caused by issues that were occurring in other sectors of the Soviet economy, with many of the goals of the second five-year plan remaining unfulfilled in 1937 when the plan was supposed to come to an end. These challenges were acutely felt in newer industries, like aircraft manufacturing, with actual production in 1937 meeting just 38% of the target. The end result was that only about two-thirds of the military production for the year 1937 would actually be completed. And again, the challenges were, were worse in, in sort of new things, new and innovative things like aircraft. But this number does need to be put in context. Two-thirds of goal is still a lot. In 1937, Germany had started a concentrated rearmament plan but it was still only producing a small fraction of what the Soviet Union was, and the other major powers in Europe were producing even less. 
This brings us to 1938, and would you believe it, another five-year plan. Work on the third plan began in 1937, and the broad outline of the plan was completed before, at the height of the purges, many of the people who had been doing the planning were purged. This greatly impacted the detailed planning, which was always the last to be done, and this resulted in a plan that was delayed and also less focused. The goals were still massive, though, and mainly along the same lines as previous plans. There was again a tremendous number of resources dedicated to military or military-adjacent goals, with the actions of Germany and Japan causing these to be pursued with added urgency. One area from which massive expansion was expected was the aviation industry, with the target being the annual production capacity of 50,000 aircraft by 1942. For comparison, Germany would never come particularly close to that number, with their highest aircraft production number being 35,000 in 1944. And the United States, in full arsenal of democracy mode in 1944, would only produce about 96,000. So a goal of 50,000 for the Soviet Union by 1944 was a, a real stretch goal. It was a lot. Tank, artillery, and ammunition production had similarly massive goals. This plan would be greatly disrupted by the war, although it was clear even in 1941 that the goals were not going to be fully met by 1942. So, on the whole, how can we evaluate the first three five-year plans? Well, there are two ways that you can kind of look at them. The first is to judge them against their own goals. In this evaluation, they did not grade very well because the goals were massive and completely unachievable in many cases. It was simply impossible to so dramatically shift the entire economic makeup of the Soviet Union over such a short period of time. But if you instead look at the five-year plans from just the raw changes that they made to Soviet society, the impact was immense. The production and refinement of almost every major industrial raw material skyrocketed. Massive projects like hydroelectric dams, railways, factories, uh, the list goes on and on. They were all completed or were on their way to completion by 1941. And most importantly for our story, the capacity of the military industry of the Soviet Union went from very little in the mid-1920s to being capable of producing thousands of tanks, aircraft, and enough other military products to keep an army of millions in the field and fighting. While counterfactuals are always dangerous, I feel comfortable saying that the Red Army would be unable to stop the Wehrmacht in 1941 at the gates of Moscow or drive them back to Berlin by 1945 without the three five-year plans. But these massive changes came with a real human cost. In some agricultural areas, the death toll was catastrophic due to famine caused by agricultural policies designed to make the five-year plans possible. All over the Soviet Union, the standard of living would stagnate, and in many areas, it would drop, including the availability of food, all in service of enhanced industrial production. And the number of people in prisons or exiled to Siberia would increase by the hundreds of thousands. These individuals would be sent to an institution that has become synonymous with repression and punishment, the gulags. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, 
or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Gulag started back in the time of the Revolution. The original idea is that they would be the incarceration system for those who were enemies of the revolution. They were also set up to accommodate what were called class enemies, or any that worked openly or in secret to undermine the revolution. Much like the definition of a kulak, the concept behind a class enemy was infinitely flexible, and it would be altered over time as needed, and as it would be, as the new Soviet Union moved from revolution to civil war and then to peace. It was also felt that the system could not be based on simple jails and prisons, but instead needed to remove the offenders completely from Soviet society. There was already a system in place for exactly this kind of scenario, and it was in Siberia. During Tsarist times, it was common for certain classes of criminals to be exiled to Siberia for some period of time. Stalin himself had spent several years in Siberia for this very reason. But instead of just being sent to Siberia, away from the rest of Russia, the Gulag system that was developed after 1918 would take the form of a large network of labor camps, and what can best be described as concentration camps. From the beginning, at least theoretically, the camps were seen as a re-education tool, giving the prisoners the ability to reform their ways and their thinking. Good behavior resulted in early release. In general, the prisoners were viewed as capable of redemption. The beginnings of the gulags would be in June 1918 when Trotsky would suggest that such a camp be used for some Czech war prisoners. From those relatively small beginnings, things would expand during the Civil War, but not as much as you might expect. During the turbulent Civil War years, those who were deemed to be the enemies of the Revolution were far more likely to simply be shot, rather than sent somewhere to be prisoners. The later and more famous structure and size of the gulags would only start to come into form in the late 1920s, particularly with the collectivization drive. One of the reasons for this expansion was because of the need for labor in Siberia. To meet the goals of the five-year plans, the Soviet Union had to do a much better job of capitalizing and exploiting the resources present in northern Siberia. It was a very resource-rich area, but it was also, believe it or not, an area that had some challenges attracting workers due to weather conditions. It is Siberia, after all. To optimize the collection of these resources, the existing gulag camp system was expanded and organized, and the camp system overall was to be led by the OGPU. The hope was that this would allow for the camps to be able to greatly expand, with the prisoners being put to work gathering the coal, gas, oil, wood, gold, or whatever else might be present in any given area. One of the challenges with this arrangement is that it created a very perverse set of incentives for those who were administering the camps and those that were deciding who should be sent there. As with other areas of the Soviet economy, the one common factor was that labor was too scarce. There, there just wasn't enough of it. 
For example, in 1939, the engineers assigned to oversee the construction of a railway project in Sevlog, which is far northern Russia, were concerned that they would need many more prisoners to complete their work on time. Once this concern was escalated, suddenly more prisoners began to arrive. When one of these prisoners arrived, they would later recall, quote, There was neither barracks nor a village. There were tents on the side with, for the guards and for the equipment. There weren't many people, perhaps one and a half thousand. The majority were middle-aged peasants, former kulaks and criminals. No visible intelligentsia, end quote. This need for more prisoners to meet the goals of the various plans would create situations where there would be quotas for finding more prisoners. For example, there would be an order given in to some Ukrainian party leaders that there needed to be about 15,000 prisoners to complete a canal project on the proper timeline. And so those prisoners should be found in Ukraine. But they all needed to be fit for work as well. I had to keep that in mind. The needs for more people would result in a situation where it was very easy and almost inevitable that people would be sent to the camps not because of their actions or beliefs, but simply to provide warm bodies to do the work. The movement of the camps to be under the OGPU umbrella was the decision that was made by Stalin, and it would be a very important one for the future inhabitants of the camps. Previously, the camps had, at least nominally, been under the jurisdiction and influence of the normal Soviet judiciary system. By placing it under the OGPU, which ran the groups of secret police like the Cheka, any idea of a possibility of prisoners receiving their legal rights was much less likely. Stalin would also be incredibly involved in the organization and running of the camps. He would receive special reports about the overall productivity of particular camps, with a particular focus on inmate productivity. He would also often review petitions for release from the prisoners or their family members. At least to me, this seems like an extremely menial task for someone like Stalin, who had a lot of other important things to do. But at the same time, nobody was going to you know, be in a position to tell him that he couldn't do that. So if he wanted to read a request for leniency, he could do that. I guess that was the benefit of being the general secretary. You can kind of do what you want. A complete chronicle of the events in all of the various gulag camps, there were 476 camp complexes, is far beyond the scope of this podcast. But just looking at one of them should help illustrate what life was like in some of the camps and, and how it evolved over time. We will focus on the Kolomá camp, which was in far northeastern Russia. The product of Kolomá was gold, which is one of the reasons it was a large camp, and the workers there were pressed hard regardless of the conditions. The gold produced from the camp was generally directly exported to fund the purchase of various technology or industrial goods that were critical to other areas of the Soviet economy when it came to them meeting their goals. The production of Kolomá was so important that at one point Stalin was getting daily reports on the output of the camp. That's, that's pretty important. The first commander of the camp was Eduard Berzin, notable as the commander of the 1st Latvian Rifle Division, which was so critical to the success of the Bolsheviks early in the Civil War period. In 1932, there were around 10,000 prisoners working in the region, either in the main camp or in the like plethora of smaller camps that were kind of dotted the surrounding countryside. During the early years of the camp, the conditions were actually quite good, and the prisoners were paid well for their services. There would even be several thousand voluntary workers in 1932. One of the prisoners from that time would say that conditions were excellent, food was good and plentiful, working hours were reasonable, and were appropriate for the season. 
Many of the prisoners were paid well enough that they were able to leave the camp when their terms in the prison were over, and they could be even far wealthier at their time of release than they had been beforehand. These early days would not last, though, and they were mostly attributed to the particular viewpoint of Burzum. He believed quite strongly that the better the workers were treated, the better they would do at extracting gold. This was not an absurd idea. Well-rested, well-fed, well-clothed workers were better at mining. This would also tie into an idea that was present throughout the early history of the camps, at least until the mid-30s, and that was the idea that the camps were being used as a re-education tool, that the time spent in camps would make the prisoners better members of society, better socialists. But the happy days were not to last. 1937 seems to be a real turning point, and as the purges sort of really got rolling, the nature of even the most inviting camps drastically changed. This change manifested in all kinds of ways. Prisoners were no longer referred to as comrades. Mail was no longer sent directly to the camps, but instead to unified post office boxes, and the exact location of the camps became a secret. Within the camps, prisoners were removed from any place of importance. Instead of being positioned to best use their skills, even those in skilled trades or engineering were put into general, manual labor forces. Food was reduced, and the overall conditions became incredibly challenging, particularly, of course, during the winter months when it was brutally cold. The structure of camps became more harsh, and prisoners would often be cataloged into groups based on their physical ability to work, with those capable of greater work being given more food, although still barely enough to live on, while those who were incapable of work, you know, not even being given enough food to survive on. Once a prisoner was placed in the lower tier groups, their ability to get more food was very limited because they would only get weaker. Poor shelter, lack of food, and lack of winter clothing meant that, on some years, half of the prisoners might die. This would require a constant injection of additional prisoners and workers. The purges provided these additional workers. It also meant that the camps would never be the same. Because part of the purges would be the amplification of the rhetoric of these prisoners being active threats to the Soviet Union, active threats to the revolution. The number of prisoners would grow because of this, and by 1938, the number was around 1.8 million, which means it had doubled since 1935. The reorganization that had started under the OGPU was continued and finished under the guiding hand of the NKVD, which was the successor of the OJPU. It would be this reorganization that would allow the camps to become greater contributors to Soviet economic goals, even if the pursuit of those goals resulted in increased human suffering and death. 